Welcome to another episode of Anthropod. I'm Grant Otsky. And I'm Jonah Rubin. Hey Jonah, what do you have there? Well, I have on my screen the latest issue of the Journal of Cultural Anthropology. This is the August 2014 issue, which was just published a few weeks ago. And if you glance through the table of contents here, you'll see an amazingly diverse set of articles. There's an article about marriages between Malagasy women and French men. There's an article about how DNA analysis is changing the meanings of South African Jewry. There's an article about physicists and the search for the Higgs boson. And there are no less than four separate articles about the borders of the human, looking at the very small question about what it means to talk about being a human being today. And as an aside, we should mention that all of these articles are open access, and that means that you can read them in their entirety for free at our website, colanth.org. And thank you for that plug. Hey, no problem. Now, what unites these diverse articles is a method that anthropologists call ethnography. The idea is basically that if you go and live with people who have daily lives of a very different sort than you do, you can come to know something important about how they interact with the world. But what happens when we try to apply this ethnographic method to places that have experienced massive violence? It is even possible to adequately describe genocides, mass killings, torture, and other human rights abuses? Well, today on Anthropod, we have three interviews with anthropologists who work in places dealing with the aftermath of mass violence, who all struggle with how to describe how the people they work with live the after-effects of this violence. First, we'll hear from Isaias Rojas, assistant professor at Rutgers University, about Peru, where state violence was so intense that families of victims were often unable to even recognize the bodies of the disappeared as being those of human beings, much less of loved ones. Professor Rojas, welcome to Anthropod. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, for starters, I was hoping you could tell us a bit more about the military government and the conflict in Peru, especially as it relates to the mass graves that you talk about in this paper. Well, the Peruvian case is an instance of how democracies can kill their own people. Uh, we are used to think that atrocities of the kind I describe in my paper are committed by authoritarian or totalitarian regimes that take the form of military dictatorships and that do not respect human rights or democratic values and institutions as we know them. But the previous case shows that atrocities can also happen in liberal democracies. When the Maoist guerrilla group known as the Shining Path launched its armed struggle in the Peruvian central southern Andes in May 1980, Peru had just uh, inaugurated a new liberal democratic regime after 12 years of military rule. Within a few weeks, the new civilian government declared the state of emergency in the rural areas affected by the guerrilla warfare. Within a few months, the civilian government ended up by yielding all the power to the military in the areas under the state of emergency. It was thus ever since, at least until the official end of the war in 1995, a formal democracy with vast areas of the countryside subjected to the state of emergency and the suspension of fundamental civil and political rights. It is in this context that the atrocities I describe in my paper took place. The headquarters of the counterinsurgency campaign, situated in the Indian city of Ayacucho, and known as Los Cabitos, 
They came as site of mass killing of suspects of terrorism who were first disappeared after having been detained by military squads. The legal and forensic investigations were conducted in the site from 2001 to 2009. They determined that the suspects last seen in Los Cabritos were presumably tortured then executed and buried in clandestine mass graves, and then to eliminate evidence of these practices of the state terror, the perpetrators burned the bodies of the victims. It is important to emphasize that these atrocities took place in the very headquarters of the counterinsurgency campaign conducted by a democratic government. This is not a case of a massacre carried out by a military patrol in a remote Andean village, nor is it a case of clandestine death squads operating outside the purview of the civilian authorities. These atrocities happened in the site where the military bureaucratic apparatus planned and carried out the counterinsurgency campaign. So the question here is how it is that a democracy can carry out this kind of practices of state terror? The Freedom case invites, at least uh, it seems to me, to problematize our understanding of what democracy is. The usual definitions uh, that emphasize the presence of institutions such as freedom of speech, uh, elections, and a system of uh, checks and balances, for instance. Um, and let me ask you a little bit more about these mass graves, because you, you refer to them not only as sites of mass killing, but also about how they can be even better thought of as a production of corpses. And I'd like to just explore this idea a bit farther with you and ask you how it is that this idea of a production of corpses is different from mass killings and from other categories that we often use to try to get at this idea of death. Yeah, okay. Uh, the distinction between what is uh, production of corpses and death as human experience is uh, articulated by the relatives of the disappeared themselves. Their senses are that during the internal conflict of the 1980s and 1990s, the forms of violence and terror deployed by both uh, the military and the Shining Path went beyond the thresholds of life and death within which the range of what the human form of life is uh, could be tested. And this is more critical in the case of the state, as uh, it is, uh, theory at least, the entity that protects rights, defends a form of life, and embodies civilization. There are two senses here. In one sense, the problem is not so much that the state can kill but the, the abject form of violation of the human body during the counterinsurgency campaign went beyond anything that could be nameable in language. The other sense refers not uh, to the forms of uh, killing or destroying life, but to the fate of the dead, and their continuing presence and stake in the world of the living. Humans dispatch properly their dead, was to be able to attain a new mode of existence for both the dead and the living, even if in the last instance, for whatever reason, their missing relatives have been killed, 
the mothers of the Zafir demanded the return of their children's bodies to offer them a proper burial. For two decades, they did not know anything about the whereabouts of their missing children. And they eventually had the chance to enter to the only site to which they could never enter. In search of their missing loved ones, they discovered that the bodies of those executed Los Cabitos had been burned to ashes. In these conditions, these human remains could not be returned to their individual families for proper burial. In the view of the mothers, that form of death, that as in Los Cabitos had destroyed entirely, completely the body, and eliminated all the cultural grammars through which people deal with the devastation of death in ordinary context, cannot be understood as a human experience of death, but as a mere production of causes. Well, this idea is very interesting because so much of the journalistic attention to mass grave exhumations concentrates on this idea of the potential recovery, on the idea of potentially identifying previously anonymous human remains and returning them to a family. But in fact, in your paper, you call special attention to the corpses of those who, like you just said, cannot be identified. So what can we learn from the way that the forensic teams in the local communities treat these bodies that are beyond the point of um, scientific identification? Yes, there is always the problem of bodies and human remains that, for any reason, cannot be eventually identified, you know, following the usual procedures of forensic identification. That happened in Argentina, in Spain, in the Balkans, in Guatemala, and of course it also happened in Peru. Families and relatives are thus uh, faced with the problem of what to do with these unknown remains, particularly those relatives who have not been able to identify their missing loved ones. In the previous case, uh, the solution the mothers of the disappeared found was to demand the conversion of the former site of killing into a site of memory and veneration, in which they could bury the unknown remains recovered in the forensic exhumation. They have already given a name to this demand. They call it the Santuario por la Memoria in Spanish, a sanctuary for memory. This is an important move, not only in terms of finding a place for those uh, victims who could not be returned to their families for proper burial, but also in terms of building a memory for them, so as not to be forgotten in the history of the political community. It is a collective response to the fact that despite the intervention of the law and forensic sciences, the bodies of the disappeared could not be recovered, and perhaps won't be ever recovered. Here, this collective response gives home to the individual grief of the families. So it's a very important lesson through which uh, we can learn how these relatives can develop forms of mourning and justice without the individual body. And related to this, in your paper, you're very insistent that recovering these bodies is not just about what happens at the local mass grave exhumation site itself, but is indeed about transforming the entire body politic. And so I was hoping you could talk just a bit more about that, about how exhuming these remains has the potential not just to transform 
the lives of the families from which they were taken, but also of the entire political community. Yes, so the question here is that, uh, again, you know, these uh, families, these mothers, uh, did not find the bodies of their missing relatives, and perhaps they won't be able to do that. But that, that's, that discovery doesn't mean that they have stopped their search. Only these discoveries in Los Caritos, this search is not only about finding the individual body, but also about the transformation of the kinds of political relations and views, political views, that resulted in atrocities such as Los Caritos. It is about the restitution of fundamental agreements in terms of life that have been devastated by the violence and terror of the internal war. It is about stating, say, that even violent, violent conflict has limits and thresholds, such as, say, uh, letting people bury, bury their dead. I think this is expressed in the inauguration of the small cross in the site of killing, of which I talk in my paper. In mobilizing notions of the sacred in their struggle, the Quechua-speaking mothers of the disappear are putting forward a radical critique of ideas of sovereignty. They are stating, it seems to me, a fundamental idea that has a familiar resemblance with political modernity. That is, that agreements in a form of life are constitutive of society, whereas sovereign power is always constitutive power. Thus, uh, a focus on the sacred is uh, neither a nostalgic inability to move forward out of the past, or a journey for a community to come, but an active and vibrant engagement with the present. This gesture is what I try to conceptualize in my paper as mourning in the subjunctive. That is to say, mourning as a chronic search of possibilities in face of the blindness of the present. Professor Rojas, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Well, Professor Rojas went to great detail to try and give us a sense of what it means to interact with dead bodies after state violence. Our next interviewee takes a different approach. Alexander Hinton, a professor at Rutgers, experiments with genre in order to try and convey the feel of Cambodia's genocide museum. He talked with me about the limits of our conventional writing strategies and the possibility of a more literary form that he calls the anthropology of ellipses. So I'm here with Alexander Hinton, and we just got done listening to your paper called Ellipses on the Genocide Museum in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. So for starters, I was hoping you'd just give those who are unfamiliar um, just a patina of what the genocide in Cambodia involved. Sure. The you know, origins of the genocide, of course, depending on how far back you go back, uh, it's linked to colonialism, uh, you know, the French intervention in Cambodia. But more recently, I think when people think of it, they think of the uh, sort of aftermath and the reverberations of the Vietnam War. Uh, at that time, because of the destabilization, a uh, revolutionary movement led by Pol Pot, the group was, was called by the king, the prince at that time, the Khmer Rouge, um, they began to get support 
because he was deposed and called for his rural children to join him in the struggle uh, against people who had overthrown him. So sort of through circumstance, uh, you had this coup attempt, you had intensive U.S. bombing that took place, uh, the country was destabilized, and the conditions were such that this movement, which has pretty much had no popular support, came to power. When they came to power, they set out to uh, implement a revolution that would be more radical than any that had ever taken place, more radical than Maoist China, uh, more radical than Vietnam. Uh, for example, they would say instead of the Great Leap Forward, they would take a, make a super Great Leap Forward. But what it meant was in you know, almost no time at all, they implemented radical social policies where they tried to completely collectivize the nation in one year. Um, they also, in order to implement their vision, certain groups were stigmatized and later targeted. Uh, when there were signs of discontent, they began to look for subversives, and you had different waves of killing that took place. And over the course of three, just almost four years, from April 17, 1975 to January 6, 1979, somewhere between 1.7 to 2.2 million Cambodians died of disease, starvation, or outright execution. That's out of a population of about eight to nine million people, so you know, almost one out of four. And tell us a little bit about the Genocide Museum, about how it came about and what its narrative of the genocide is. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. So in 1979, the new government came in, and when they went to a former the compound of a formal, former high school, they found a compound that had dead bodies in it. So at that time, when the troops arrived, I, you know, I've spoken to one of the general who came in and a media team, and they there's an awful smell coming from a former high school. Uh, they went inside, and what they found basically were decomposing corpses, as well as reams and reams of documents blowing in the air, strange things like piles of clothes. So they discovered this place had been a site where people were executed and also tortured beforehand, so they found instrument of torture. So a Vietnamese expert helped a Cambodian survivor, and the two of them began together to work to create a museum on the site. At that time, there was a debate at the UN about whether who should have Cambodia's seat at the United Nations, uh, and it fell into Cold War politics. So Vietnam was linked to the Soviet Union. This was Cambodia, the People's Republic of the regime. Uh, that was one bloc versus the Western Cold Bloc, and you know that's the bloc that ultimately won. Uh, but there were so there were attempts to say, well, how could you, you know, especially in the wake of the of the Holocaust, how could you possibly give this genocidal regime the seat? And, you know, the word genocide was frequently used. Some of the language at tool sling you find now on the signage uh, is language that comes from this time in 1979, 1980, when they would say, for example, the fascist Hitlerite Pol Pot click. So the, the museum was originally set up both for commemoration but also to deliver an explicit message that was linked to politics, and they began to bring in foreign delegations. There was a 1979 called a show trial that they, had, for five days, they tried Pol Pot and Ng Sari in absentia, and they, for example, brought people to come see the museum, which was just sort of getting going. They brought people from ministries in to see it. School children were brought in, so it was really a, a device to mobilize people to stir up their anger. When you got to you know, the late and there were international sanctions imposed, so little work was done to sort of build it into the type of institution that we think of, say, if you go to Auschwitz or a modern contemporary memorial museum. So it's very spare, there's very little signage, and the atrocities are supposed to speak for themselves. Many years you would go there and you'd have the beds where the prisoners were killed, and you could see the very dark stain underneath. 
and they have photographs, so it's very graphic. But when the UN eventually, they're in the sort of post-Cold War situation, peace building in Cambodia, you begin to have the international community, international civil society arrive, and at this time the museum began to transform. The message to some extent became about other things, about learning about the past, seeking the truth. This has continued up to the present with the tribunal that's taking place in Cambodia right now. So at the present, you know, if you think in the past where they brought ministry officials in to see you know, proof evidence of the Khmer Rouge atrocities, now people come to think about the past, commemorate but also very much linked to the project of justice that's underway. And I'm writing a book right now about the uh, tribunal that's being held in Cambodia. So I do a lot of uh, work there. One of the most fascinating parts of your presentation for me personally was the way that you call our attention not only to the official signs and the official um, photos which the designers of the museum had planned out, but also to things like the beggar you see in the entrance or the construction crew working on the path. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your highlighting of these seemingly marginal figures to the experience of being in the museum. Yeah, well, being in, so when you do sort of traditional expository writing, you use statements of fact, you expose, you make clear. And so I could say at the entrance of the Tool Sling Museum of Genocidal Crimes, there's a mine victim, someone who, you know, people are feeling comfortable about. You could sort of explain it in a manner like that, or you can integrate it into a narrative where it's used in such a manner that it makes you feel, as opposed to just a literal fact, it makes you feel uneasy. Because the museum is a very uncanny place, and it's very hard to, for example, convey the notion of the uncanny, of doubling, that exists there. And so there are photographs, for example, and if the photographs stare back at you, and in a sense, there's no way that expository writing can capture that. So. I've been trying to, in addition to doing expository writing, which gets something, try other things using literary strategies. Right now, I think of sort of an anthropology of ellipsis is one way of thinking about it. That which is left out, that which is unsaid, that which is marked but uncommented upon. Uh, so the notion of perpetration, for example, in the museum is such that once you use the word perpetrator, what you fill in is, right, victim, good, evil, and a set of binaries. That's what the coding that comes in. But if the word perpetrator is actually a neutral term, originally that talks about someone who performs an act that's done and it had a neutral sense at one point, but now it's been linked to criminology. So again, part of the what I'm trying to do with, you know, for example, right now, thinking about the anthropology of the of ellipsis is to look at these spaces, these places that are normally out of sight, the things that we miss because we have certain set, a certain set of expectations that we bring to bear when we're in the field. And also, I think very much when the way we present information involves ellipsis because, for example, if we use expository writing, we're not getting at other sorts of things. Obviously, no one can ever get at everything, but we have conventions, and I think we have highly problematic conventions, and I think even something like having journals that are fee-paid journals that the knowledge that's being produced and we're talking about is only available to people who, in some sense, have wealth. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me as well, you know, I, for myself, I've been considering trying to predominantly publish an open access online journal. Obviously, lots of people don't have access to the internet still, but it's, you know, it's a step forward But even, you know, how we communicate forms in which we communicate, all those things, sometimes I think of it as elliptical anthropology. You have anthropology of the ellipsis, which is the study of the ellipsis at work in general, but specifically there are many ways in which our conventions are elliptical, 
and we need to recognize that as opposed to just thinking of the sort of perfect terminated circle, think maybe of the elliptical circle. Just to give listeners a sense of what you mean when you talk about the literary voice, do you think I could get you maybe to read just one paragraph of your presentation? Yeah, first ellipsis, one of three. The 2006 Authoritative Guide to the Toolsling Museum of Genocidal Crimes. Cross the entrance, but watch out for the beggar. Avert your gaze. Half his face has melted away. He only has one eye. He wants your pity so he can get your money. Warning, he may still be there on the way out. Buy your ticket, take a brochure, but it isn't necessary to read it. The signs tell you all you need to know. Here's the first. And so I was wondering if you could just tell us just a little bit more about what this kind of literary voice allows you to get at that is so hard to get in this more traditional expository tone that academic anthropology and other academic disciplines so often take. Right. One thing visually is you visualize the experience. It places you there. It doesn't give you the ability to step outside and be at a distance. You're in it. So I'm, I have the person who's narrating, me, is taking the command position using imperative in all speech. So it erases the pronoun. So you have ellipsis even with the pronoun. Everything's a command, subject, object. So the, the listener, in some sense, is an object. There's an objectification going. At the same time, like people who are going there and consuming the site in some way, there's all sorts of commodification that's going on. And there are also things that you see, that you're meant to see, and that you're not meant to see. So, for example, the beginning, no one wants to look at this guy. I've seen him there for years. Everybody averts their gaze. He walks up and holds out the cap, and people flee him. Sometimes they'll give money and run away, and you know, he's very aware of what's going on. But people avert, you know, they avert his gaze. It's uncomfortable, and it makes people feel really upset. It's disturbing. And in some sense, I think, to get at the sort of material that we're working with, violence there has to be you have to it's unsettling you need to unsettle so my intention very much is to try and unsettle more broadly going through the paper with the notion of for example doubleness you can speak abstractly about doubleness or the uncanny but when you talk about it and embody it in some sort of visual image you see it completely differently right to say the photograph is uncanny versus describing a photograph for example, at one point I talk about a photograph of mother and child, which of course you know, is an absolutely awful thing, but also plays to our notion of victimhood. The person in the photo is actually the wife of a moderately high-ranking cadre. So you have this doubleness of victim and perpetrator sort of embodied there. But also when you get there and you stand next to this glass, you see yourself reflected in it. And there's also this notion of, you know, when you're there and you're looking you're in it literally in sort of the reflection and so these different levels you're able to convey in a completely different way of writing but also I think the notion that what I want to do if you go to a professional meeting like this is people don't expect to hear writing like this so I'm trying to disrupt you know what's going on and to, you know present hopefully in sort of a way that's completely out of place and unsettling you know sort of throughout the question what does it mean to be writing in certain sorts of ways I'm by no means you know, expert using this, but I'm, you know, I'm trying. And I think with the anthropology of ellipsis as I think about it, part of the idea is to try to do something different, to think in a different way, as opposed to just falling back into these ready conventions that we have, which serve certain purposes, but it gets stale. And I think, you know, by and large, you hear people say that when they come to the meetings, they listen to papers and they forget most of them. Um, so, you know, in general, if we also talk about the importance of anthropology, we want to talk to other audiences how do we communicate to them? Right? Do they have to come learn our high theory? Or do we find ways of 
representing, talking about our material, and more directly engages them. And this is an interesting question if you're also working, for example, with rural populations that are highly illiterate. Like, also, what sort of way might you have to communicate with them? What happens when the material goes back to them in some form? So, I, you know, in Cambodia, I've been on television and different things, and, you know, people in the village where I've done a lot of work, they recognize me and see me on TV, and so there are ways in which, you know, things travel much more quickly than they ever did before. So these are all things I think, you know, people have thought about them. There's discussion of them, but it's not mainstream by any means. And if anything, it's sort of like the person, you know, there's an analogy with the person at the gate where, we sort of, it's there, we're aware of it, we acknowledge it, but then we move on. Professor Hampton, thank you so much for being on Anthropod. Both Professor Rojas and Professor Hinton work hard to convey the difficult truth about their respective field sites. But our final interview today calls into question this unwavering focus on establishing the historical truth. Elizabeth Drexler, associate professor at Michigan State University, draws our attention to those things which might escape a truth commission or war crimes tribunal, but which are still amongst the most important parts of life after mass human rights violations. In her work in East Timor, she looks at things like rumors, suspicions, and accusations. Let's take a listen. We just got done listening to Elizabeth Drexler's paper, Social Knowledge and the Clandestine Past at the AAAs. So, Elizabeth Drexler, welcome to Anthropod. Thank you very much for having me. So, for starters, tell us a little bit about genocide in East Timor. It's hard to give a brief history of East Timor because it's a very complicated conflict, but in short, the Indonesian forces invaded East Timor at the height of the Cold War in the 1970s following the Carnation Revolution in Portugal. At that time, there was a conflict amongst different groups of Timor about the future of Timor. The Indonesian intelligence forces were involved from the beginning. And there was, an, there was a move by a minority group to say that they wanted to join Indonesia. Um, but there was also an armed resistance. Human rights violations continued, but things really shifted um, as the global trends shifted from armed resistance and self-determination to nonviolence and human rights. In the 1990s, the Indonesian military massacred civilians who were attending a memorial service. This was in the Santa Cruz Cemetery. Max Stahl captured this on video footage, and you can actually find that on YouTube. And this was shocking to the world. The international support networks were already in place, and they made the most of this in 1996. Two Timorese got the Nobel Peace Prize, um, and there was a very, very active international support network. This continued until President Suharto, the authoritarian ruler of Indonesia, who had been president when Timor was invaded, stepped down during the Asian monetary crisis, and he offered his successor, Habibi, who was not a military man, a referendum to choose whether Timorese would remain in the option of having a special status within Indonesia or being independent. Timorese voted overwhelmingly for independence. The UN was there to safeguard the election. There was violence. Jeffrey Robinson has written a great book called If You Leave Us Here, We Will Die. He, he refutes the argument that was being made that it was a civil war amongst factions of Timorese and talks about the efforts to 
demonstrate that the Indonesian military was involved because the violence during this period could be turned on and turned off, even though the Indonesian military was supposed to be guaranteeing the safety of people during the vote. After the vote, when the Indonesian soldiers were leaving, there was something called the Scorched Earth Campaign. Significant portions of the population were forcibly relocated to West Timor, Indonesian West Timor, because East Timor is only half the island due to, it, it is half the island and an enclave, the Okusi enclave. And this has to do with the, it was the only portions colonized by Portugal. The rest, um, what became Indonesia was all colonized by the Dutch with some exceptions. The, the UN peacekeeping forces stayed on. There was an active international movement to have various transitional processes. And so what sort of transitional justice mechanisms did you see develop in East Timor to make that transition from authoritarian rule to democracy? Well, okay, there were several. There were a number of investigative commissions. There were also tribunals and there was a truth commission. So there was first a very credible Indonesian fact-finding mission, but this we could view as evidence that the international community and the pressure they were exerting diplomatically did mean something. So the Indonesians, the, the report actually demonstrates that, that there w was significant Indonesian military involvement. After the pressure was off and the Indonesians were allowed to try military perpetrators in ad hoc human rights tribunals, which were not rigorous and successful. They've been widely criticized. In fact, many of the people who, the witnesses who gave testimony there were, you know, they were not well protected. They were harassed and intimidated. So that was, that was one trial. The UN also supported the Serious Crimes Unit, and they had hybridized tribunals with Timorese and international judges. They, they tried a number of priority cases of massive human rights violations. They were somewhat limited by their jurisdiction in time and space and had difficulty proving the systematic nature of the crimes against humanity. And of course, people were not extradited for trial. So they were not effective in getting the masterminds. There was also a truth commission, the CAVR, the Commission for Truth and Reception, which at the time was designed on the principle that many communities had been divided, people had been displaced, and that there was a significant amount of what they were calling non-serious crimes, property damage. In addition to the truth-seeking process, they also had an innovative program called the Community Reconciliation Process, where the deponent would apply to be reconciled with a particular community, and people from the National Truth Commission would go out to the different regions and they would have hearings. And these were, in many cases, I think these were really one of the most effective parts of the transitional justice process because people asked the questions they wanted to know. At the same time, I think their success varied depending on the community figures that sat on the local board, what kind of standing they had in the community, what relationship they had to the violence. And these were supposed to be able to look further back, but I know that many people were dissatisfied that they didn't look at earlier violence in 1974. Let's talk maybe a little bit more about those successes and failures. Uh -huh. You know, normally we think about transitional justice processes as processes that are about making things that were previously hidden visible and audible. But in your presentation, you kind of complicate this simplistic narrative of visibilizing and uh, you know bringing to light uh, the past. So I was hoping you could expand a little bit about the secrecies and violences that continue through the transitional and post-transition periods. 
Sure. Well, the whole human rights witnessing project and transitional justice more or less relies on making things known, which seems a natural enough response to the complicated dynamics of clandestine periods, particularly the way in which Indonesian military infiltrated social relationships. The the number of people who were informing on each other. In fact, uh, Jose Ramos Huerta, who was a Nobel Prize winner and um, president of independent Timor-Leste, said, you know, half the country was paid to spy on the other half. And in a small country, this is a significant problem in the aftermath. It's, it's also a significant problem during the conflict. So specifically in my paper, I've written about some of the complications of this dynamic in, in the legal processes elsewhere. But what I talked about yesterday was the problem of how we really know what we know and how do we imagine and talk about that which we actually cannot know. And I specifically didn't want to draw on interviews because I think that as anthropologists, we really favor the experience near ethnographic moment where we talk to people about how it really was. And in fact, I had done interviews with people who either had been betrayed by people who were informants or I thought in retrospect actually were involved in the system. And I think that it's it's complicated to get at this dynamic and that part of the point that I want to make is that at some level it doesn't even matter, well of course it always matters, but it's, it's difficult to determine what the actual absolute truth was and the perceptions, the suspicions, the rumors have very real concrete effects, whether or not they're true, and some of those are lingering. Some of the, the ways in which people are betrayed are extremely complicated. And I think some anthropologists have done excellent work on this, like Vina Das's work, when she was saying that, you know, sometimes it it takes communities a long time to, and as Vina Das says, it's a significant achievement to actually develop ordinary life, forget the transcendent goals of reconciliation, social repair, that actually reestablishing ordinary social relations for people who have been through this kind of conflict, who remain in marginal positions, who have difficult securing economic livelihoods, and that actually just being able to continue to live side by side is an achievement. And I think that's true, but what I was trying to say is, how can we actually try to think about this differently than a mapping of just who did what, who knew what. So I'm trying to think about the ways in which knowledge circulates through a society, the ways in which people know things, unknow things, the ways in which the things they know shape actions that they can't say, the ways in which they don't actually know or never have some kind of certainty about what people's intentions were, who they were, and in Timor, particularly in the conditions of remembering that have developed in the aftermath of all of these transitional justice processes. There's a perception so that the what the Truth Commission said was that there was a dangerous double game in which and, and to point at how the Indonesian military infiltrated the the most intimate layers of social life, the ways in which people were recruited, the ways in which people informed on each other. And so that we need to actually kind of try to think about this systematically and in the paper I actually looked at some Indonesian short fiction that was read as human rights testimonial fiction to circulate the results of the Amnesty and Human Rights Watch report on the Santa Cruz massacre. 
And Seno Gumira Ajidharma, the author, says that he was trying to resist in the place that he'd been censored because he lost his job as a journalist for two years for essentially taking the military at its word because the military said regrettable things happened. So he said, okay, well, I can talk about this then. Even the military says something, you know, something has happened. And he was, he was not able to retain his job. He was, he was forced out. And so he wrote these surreal short stories, and he said he thematized them so that people would, would see the clues, so that there would be Portuguese names, so that Indonesian readers should be thinking of Timor. And he has several of the instances of violence recur in many of the stories, so they're synchronized. But when I go back and look at them, I think what's interesting is the what Seno called the lipstick, the totally exaggerated, surreal parts, and what that sort of tells us about the mood at that time. And looking at this as kind of an alternative archive of sorts for sort of affect of, of things and modes of remembering that have been forgotten or you know, that have shifted after sort of the dominant narratives of transitional justice. So what does it mean when these kind of deep suspicions all of a sudden come to light and people can um, hear about or talk about or not talk about the sorts of betrayals that marked the military period? Well, I mean, I think the, the place where people were actually able to talk directly in a transitional justice space were these community reconciliation processes, which I didn't talk about in the paper. And I think those had mixed successes, depending on who the people were, depending on what the sort of political conditions were in that particular place. And I think some people got closure and some people felt like there was no way they were going to get the information they wanted and they walked out. I mean, they didn't have to extend forgiveness to the deponent asking for forgiveness, asking to be reconciled. But at the same time, the process was going forward. And it was part of this overarching narrative of, you know, we need to reconcile amongst ourselves. We need to reconcile with Indonesia. Indonesians lost lives too. And so this depoliticizing, relativizing framework, I think, has made it difficult to talk about the benefits to a lot of these relationships. Yeah, so in some cases, people got the answers that they were looking for. And in other cases, I think they just felt like, you know, they weren't, they just wanted to move on. And one of the things you highlight is that there's some things that were actually harder to discuss in the post-transition period than before. I think it may be actually the complex ways in which people were playing both sides or the economic benefits or the ways in which people who might have had power in the past continued to have power. And it's not that people don't talk about them, but it's that in the name of independence, we got independence, you know, a lot of things get less discursive space. Um, I don't know if there's any other parts of the paper that I didn't ask about that you want to highlight or anything else you want to add. Um, I guess just that something that came up in the question and answer period that I felt like was really important was that I think both legal processes and transitional justice narratives have a hard time sort of coming to terms with these gray zones because we look at them as aberrations or bad choices by individuals instead of as constitutive elements of various conflicts. Um, but I think it's important to think beyond just gray zones of victims, vic victims and perpetrators and to think of sort of the multiple kinds of ambiguity that, that exist in extreme situations and their aftermaths. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much.
hope you've enjoyed this episode of Anthropod. We'd like to thank Professor Rojas, Professor Hinton, and Professor Drexler for talking to us about their research. You can find out more information about the conflicts that they talk about, as well as about their respective research projects, at our website, coanth.org. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And if you're already a subscriber, please take a minute to give us a five-star rating and to give us a nice review. It helps us reach a bigger audience when you do so, and we're greatly appreciative. Now, if you'd like to let us know what you think about today's podcast and get constant updates on other fascinating ethnographic projects, then connect with us. We are at Colant on Twitter and Cultural Anthropology on Facebook. And keep checking back at Colant.org for more updates. This month, we have four amazing short essays on the concept of illegality. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, I can do that. I know what the next anthropod should be about. Then please get in touch. We're currently looking for people who are interested in producing an episode of Anthropod, either based on an article of cultural anthropology or on any other topic of anthropological interest. No prior experience in podcasting is required. We'll work with you from idea to finished product. Email us today at anthropod at Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another exciting look into the world of anthropology.